everyone, and welcome to the Bottom Up Revolution podcast, where we share the stories of the Strong Towns movement in action. I'm Rachel Quednell, your host. If you live in a small town, grew up in one, or just have a rural community that is close to your heart, you have probably heard this common refrain about that place. Young people don't stay in this community. We're experiencing brain drain. After the plant or the factory close, we've been losing population. When people leave and no one comes to replace them in smaller towns, businesses shut down, schools are half empty, open positions can't be filled, and even basic services are a struggle to cover with declining property taxes. It can be a downward spiral. Today's guests are doing something about that. Jennifer Stromston is the Director of Programs at the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation in Brattleboro, Vermont, and Alex Beck runs their Welcoming Communities Program. These leaders take a holistic approach to addressing problems like population decline and brain drain through economic investment, workforce training, and of particular interest for our conversation today, inviting new Americans, refugees, to their community and helping them integrate and find employment when they arrive. Jen and Alex talk about how this new initiative has breathed life into their rural town, giving a sense of hope for the future, filling necessary jobs, and rebuilding the economic prospects of this place. Their organization has worked with local businesses to partner them with new immigrants, coordinating transportation, setting up interpreters when needed, and figuring out what training these refugees need to get back on their feet and begin employment in Brattleboro. It's a situation that everyone is benefiting from. I hope you enjoy and learn from this conversation with two leaders at the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation. Jen Stromson and Alex Beck, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. It's good to have you both on the show today. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much. So can you each tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you ended up doing the work that you're doing today at the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation? I'm Jennifer. Let's start with you. I am someone who was always interested in town planning and towns and city stuff. I was actually born in New York City. My dad was an architect and city planner, um, but I didn't do any of that. I did other things for a long time, worked in nonprofits. Um, and when I had a chance to go back to school in my 40s, I kind of found my way towards um, a regional planning program in part because it was nearby. And I was just really lucky to stumble into um the UMass program, um, shout out to UMass. And they really, in a very special way, do planning that's appropriate to small towns and rural places um, and regional stuff, um, which is kind of different from a lot of planning programs across the country, um, which may be kind of more urban in scope and focus. And so through that, I I got introduced to a lot of different and new perspectives. While I I do love land use, I ended up kind of getting into um, projects that were more about, um, you know, core issues in the economy and rural and small town economy things. And so that sort of the, there's a whole other set of things that ended up bringing me to this organization. Um, But one of them actually was um, around looking at the economic impacts of the closure of the local nuclear power plants. And that led me into some work that then led me to Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation, um, where where we both work, and that's where I'm the director of programs. 
Great. And Alex, what about you? How did you end up in your role at the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation? Yeah. So I am. Um, my background is is an, was it used to be, or maybe now still is again, um, in international development and predominantly Latin American studies, actually. And so after I graduated college, I went to World Learning uh, SIT Graduate Institute, which is located in Brattleboro. And so um, I studied sustainable rural development and program planning and nonprofit management and all of these things. Went abroad, loved that experience. But what I realized I was missing was knowledge of the local context. You know, who was I to go to a, a different country and assume I understood my environment enough to to be an agent of change. And so I came um, back to Brattleboro. I also, I will say, met my now wife um, during that time. So uh, that also brought me back to Brattleboro. And so I found myself being interested in doing rural sustainable development in a community that I was familiar with and started off running the Young Professionals Group. Uh, that's a, a BDCC program. And from there, kind of backed my way into uh, being a workforce and education specialist. Um, and so I've been there for quite some time and do a little bit of grant writing. That's how I first met Jen and, and really have just kind of tried to fill the gap uh, in the community that we needed. And that gap was people and, and workforce development. I think that desire to be connected to the community that you're serving and really like knowing what those needs are is, is something that is definitely part of what we do at Strong Towns and something a lot of our listeners will relate to as well. For people that aren't familiar with Brattleboro, what is the community like? Um, you know, what are some of the assets and challenges in your town? That could be a question for either of you. Alex, you should start because you really live here and that is always the most important perspective. Yeah, sure. So, you know, statistically, 12,000 people, maybe a little bit more, um, quite a small town. However, it was... It benefited from, you know, we'll say um, an influx of the back to the landers um, when when that movement was happening. And so it brought a really eclectic mix of your traditional um, industrial New England feel to, for lack of a better phrase, the hippie movement. And the hippie movement never really died in Rattleboro. But we have a really strong farm and food culture, um, really strong arts culture, again, for a town of 12,000 these community assets, I would say, are bigger than what you'd expect for our town, a town our size. And so um, I think that's really what, what in my mind, really um, is a highlight of Brattleboro. And we, um, we're close to Keene, New Hampshire. We're close to Northampton, Massachusetts. We are quintessential Vermont, but uh, not too far from the rest of the world, we'll say. What are some of the challenges that Brattleboro has been facing or, you know, is currently facing? Um, and then let's talk about how your organization is working to address those. With any community, I think the greatest asset are its people. That is true for Brattleboro. And it's also really points to the problems that Brattleboro and, you know, many rural American communities are facing is that we don't have enough people. Um, you know, our community leaders are retiring they may not being be replaced by you know folks of a younger generation, um, and the same can be said in the workforce. You know our schools are struggling because there's not enough students. Our nonprofit boards are struggling because there's not enough volunteers. I would say that that is one of the things that across the board kind of impacts our, our daily lives the most in some ways, and it's of course what Jen and I spend 
the most amount of our time thinking, or I spend the most amount of my time thinking about. Jen has a, a whole other slew of programs she's also focused on. But um, yeah, that's, I think, what, what I would say. Yeah. So let's get into hearing about what BDCC does to address these concerns. And I know you guys are involved in so many different sorts of programs. Jen, let's start with you since you are you know, the director of programs. What are some of the initiatives that your organization is doing to help um, support the economy and the people in your region? We are one of 12 regional development corporations that effectively deliver economic services, economic development services across the state of Vermont. And so we don't have county government. So there's kind of a this sort of host of regional agencies that perform some of those functions. They're all funded at about a hundred and something thousand dollars a year. So like a person that is the baseline. We are kind of special. Some They're all special. We're a little different in that we, like some of them, have a lot of real estate. We began as an industrial corporation that was built on the reality that in the 60s, you know, in rural development, um, industrial creating jobs was sort of, you know, the, the biggest concern. And so we still own a lot of real estate. We um, operate as a nonprofit, you know, uh, helping companies get started or grow. Um, we also help with a lot of real estate projects, helping a company expand here because like a lot of places, uh, the cost to build a thing does not warrant <laughs> the cost to build it. Um, and so you end up with companies that want to stay here, want to grow here, but cannot possibly justify the cost of the expansion. Um, and that becomes this catch 22 um, because even though we're a rural area, construction costs are not low. If anything, they can be higher than some more developed areas because of a variety of factors. Um, so that's one really big area. And, and it's important because it's kind of our roots. And it's also um, important because it illustrates how far we've um, gone beyond that. Uh, several years ago, coming out of some really um, important economic crises, including some natural disasters, but also the closure of the power plant, which you know took a huge chunk out of our GDP, this region started to do some strategic planning and started to say, like, can we stop reacting and start to understand what's been happening to us for decades as far as economic changes and get ahead of it and get proactive? And so that's kind of what's really special about our organization, which is that, you know, about a decade ago, a kind of a grassroots economic strategic group was formed, Southeastern Vermont Economic Development Strategies, that started to take a, a very different look at things, kind of more grassroots, very regional and started to bring in some um, resources to do strategic planning. And so we are really guided at this point. We're not just an industrial corporation that started in the 60s. We're guided by the strategic plan, which leads us to do a lot more, which leads us to say, how are we going to keep high schoolers here in a way that enables that them, that them to economically thrive, right? We can't just say we can't let our kids leave. We have to say, what is the proposition that makes that make sense for them and for this region, for instance? And so that's that's kind of the how this organization works. And I think that duality, having this very kind of this core industrial development, commercial development agency that has some heft, that has a real track record, um, but also this very entrepreneurial, innovative, grassroots thing of SEVEDs, that's what really makes us special and leads us to do things that are very forward-looking, sometimes well ahead of where the funding sources are, not just being reactive, but saying, what's the what's really the model for rural, healthy, rural, sustainable development that's good for people that might not have even been invented yet, 
right? And that's kind of how we operate. Alex, I would love to hear about the work you're specifically involved in and especially the Welcoming Communities Initiative. How did that get started and how is that connected to the overall work of your organization? Yeah. So, you know, to draw on what Jen said, increasing the size and quality of our workforce and increasing our population generally, that was my mantra. You know, as the workforce and education specialist, if if it was related to those two goals, um, I'm running full steam ahead. And in looking at what other rural communities have that we may not, the clear factor in Southern Vermont was immigration. Um, there's a ton of other things that we share with a lot of other communities, infrastructure, you know, cost of living, all of the things we know, you know, help people live in a place or don't. But what was unique about Southern Vermont was really our lack of immigration. And so as an organization, um, I think our leadership really, you know, sought to see what does it take to be a community that welcomes folks. And and it was really, um, part of it was started um, with the uh, Boston Fed Working Communities Challenge that was launched in Vermont. And, and for those not familiar, it's, you know, a Boston Fed program that encourages communities or groups of communities to pick an issue that would lead to uh, systems change, you know, tra- a transformative systems change in their region. And so, um, again, the leadership of our organization said, it's got to be immigration. And so that was when we started partnering uh, with local organizations and understanding what does it take to become a welcoming community. And, and it sounds, you know, simple, you know, in that sentence, but it's it's very much not. And so we partnered with um, an organization called the Community Asylum Seekers Project um, that was already in our community and learned what are the barriers that asylum seekers are facing and what are the opportunities that they see in Southern Vermont that other folks may not. Through that, you know, the formulation of our team and thinking about what a com- working communities project would look like, um, you know, I was encouraged and supported by, you know, our, our leadership to, to do some research. And, and, and so I was cold calling all of the organizations in, you know, New, the New England area around us, you know, how do you do um, refugee resettlement or how do you support asylum seekers? It was kind of just hitting the pavement, uh, proverbially speaking. Um, this was all, you know, started in late 2019. Um, so, you know, when COVID hit, um, that was certainly a, a speed bump there. And so through this work, we were introduced to the Ethiopian Community Development Council, which is a national refugee resettlement organization. And so from that point, it, that's when things really started clicking because we had a plan. We had been putting a lot of thought and energy you know, as an organization, but also as a region around workforce, around attracting new people. And so I think ECDC recognized us as a unique and thoughtful partner in in doing this work together in, in starting a refugee resettlement community. Yeah, very cool. So obviously there are a lot of different components of refugee resettlement, but am I right that you guys have primarily been working on how do we connect a new Americans with like employment opportunities and how do we help employers in the region accommodate those folks and, and hire them and bring them in? What does that look like? Like what are some of the practical things that you all have done? So the, we have a, an initiative called welcoming workplaces. Um, it's getting, we're going to be really redundant, but again, our goal is to truly be welcoming in, in all of the sense. Um, 
And uh, so I visited other larger employers in Vermont. You know, we do have a large refugee resettlement population in Burlington, in Chittenden County up north. And so I met with all the employers there, the, the, the leading employers of, of new Vermonters and new Americans and said, what worked and what didn't. And I took those learnings and I really shared with our local employers. Um, and remember, everyone's desperate for, for labor. And so there was zero pushback from the private sector on the idea of supporting greater immigration. They all said, what do I need to do? What do I need to know? And so it's little things about, you know, folks will have a variety of different legal statuses. It's not really your business to know. Um, it's only your business uh, to know that they're eligible to work. Here's the acceptable paperwork. Um, you might not be comfortable or familiar with it, but this is what you're going to need to know. You know, if someone doesn't have a social security number yet, they can get paid. Um, they will pay taxes. It's slightly more complicated if you're, uh, you know, the finance person on an HR team, but they were willing to learn. And so that's, that's some basic stuff. And then there's really, you know, how are you supporting them? Uh, in achieving the skills to succeed as employees and, and predominantly around language proficiency. And, you know, are you willing to split the costs of interpretation and translation? Uh, you know, would you hire five people at once and put them all on the same shift so that they can learn from each other? You can reduce co costs of, you know, again, interpreters and translators. And so there's a, an actual cohort of, of folks um, within your company that, that feel represented and feel welcomed. And, you know, this was all ideas to us until the employers really dove in. And so there were just a few employers early on who, instead of saying, oh, I don't know, it sounds complicated. They say, yes, and we'll figure, out, figure it out along the way. Um, and so that was, you know, I would say there's all the tips and tricks and, and that you can think of, but like partnership um, was really the most important asset because things went wrong. You know, things go wrong every day. You know, who's picking this person up from work to get them to a doctor's appointment that nobody knew they had? Um, we're all working through those little things together. And it's that flexibility, I think, that that is something we really try to impart on employers. Yeah, thanks for explaining some of that. One of the things that my colleague Daniel mentioned when he was sharing about your, your organization is, and I don't know if this is still happening, but that you all helped to coordinate like a like a sort of impromptu van pickup service um, transport option for um, people that needed to get to work and didn't always have a car. Is that still happening? Like, how did that come to be? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about some of the nitty gritty on this one. <laughs> yeah. This is my, you know, Alex is kind of did system level work and designing, you know, all of this, the cohort things. And then, you know, part of my job is sort of helping figure out how to operationalize some of these going forward um, a little bit more in the weeds. So one of the things that's been really, really important is that early on, uh, we were sort of blessed to be able to bring on board one of the members of the refugee community who themselves had international development, had, in, had NGO migrant resettlement experience um, from their own country. But I think it's really important to point that out, that, you know, when you're working to serve a community, you know, we all talk about it, but we all have to sort of like walk the walk and say, let's bring people from within the community to help design the solutions. And so that's been um, what we've been able to be very lucky to have the opportunity to actually lean into that quickly. And so that person is part of my team. And then there's another person, also part of the refugee community, who works for the for ECDC. And that's kind of our implementation team. And they 
interface with HR people and they interface with the workers, with the working refugees, with people trying to get into work. Um, and so what we are doing is to try to, to troubleshoot. Now we have like two timeframes, right? So the near-term timeframe involves the van because folks arrive, they don't have driver's licenses and doing this cohort work means we have to sort of say, if you're willing to take on five or six or seven people, we're going to sort of meet you partway and help solve for some of the transportation problems. Um, and so yes, in our, in our, we're very lucky in this area to have pretty decent rural public transportation. It just doesn't quite have enough hours or sometimes the routes aren't quite, you know, close enough to the front door of the, of the place. And so we supplement that with a van, you know, and I think that required um, us to also be willing to do something that is really important. We understand that what one big company can do, a big company in Burlington that might be hiring 20 or 30 people, they might be able to run a van. They could get the commuter van through the special program that's subsidized through the state and it's awesome and have one of their employees drive it. But when you're talking with smaller scale employees, employers in a rural area, and most of our employers are a lot smaller than that, they don't have that kind of extra give. They don't have that extra capacity. And to organize it, they might have one HR person if they're lucky. They don't necessarily have someone who could also drive the van. They might not even be employing enough people for it to be worth it for them to know at the beginning that they want to risk some extra money in addition to all the other things they're going to need to figure out. So we took on some of that risk, right? We got some extra funding to help pay for the van. Thanks to the Department of Labor. Vermont Department of Labor has been extremely creative and um, partnered with us to invent solutions. And we and we also created like a we cobbled together cohorts from different companies. That's such an important thing in rural areas. And I think it's, um, you know, we talk about capacity all the time. There's not capacity again. Capacity is a problem. But this is an example of exactly what that means. We as an organization bring the capacity to organize, to bundle together, serving multiple employers in a way that an individual employer or a nonprofit that's focused on, you know, important basic needs like food and shelter just cannot do. But because our focus is about economic mobility and prosperity and helping the economy thrive, we can. And this is what we're here to do. So it's, um, it, it is one of those little things that made possible within a month or so of people being here, having you know, 20-something adults getting to work in a way that we just couldn't have made possible for a few more months without um, some miracle. Because people have needed until now, we finally have maybe a third of the working people are on track to get a driver's license by the end of the summer, which is pretty amazing. You know, that's how slow this this goes. Yeah. I love that you highlighted the importance of having a body that can coordinate this stuff. And uh, yeah, knowing that small businesses only have so much capacity and they're trying to just do the day-to-day of their business to have um, help from an organization like yours to help figure out some of this stuff behind the scenes sounds really beneficial. What are some of the results that both of you are most proud of in in your work with the Welcoming Communities Initiative and in other um, projects that your organization is leading, you know, in your time there so far? Um, Alex, maybe we can start with you. What are what are some of the success stories you're really excited about? You know, we have a high school career program that you know, I know help students every day. And that's excellent. You know, the young professionals group, I've met some of my best and longest friends from there. But this work around welcoming communities and just, you know, we've welcomed more than 100 um, refugees since January of this year. This is the thing that has had the most visible impact on, on, on our community in Brattleboro. 
And, and that just makes me feel, you know, differently and, and good. You know, I think, you know, when I leave for work every day, there's three young women, um, Afghan women who wait on the corner of my street for the bus. Um, and in the afternoons, I hear them laughing, you know, biking through town and, um, the businesses in our downtown have welcome signs in English, Pashto and Dari. And it's just, it, it, it's starting that transformative change in behavior, which is great, but the makeup of our community is changing in a way that we couldn't have envisioned a year ago. And it's just, you know, it brings hope to a rural community in my mind. You know, this is something the population demographics has been, you know, the bane of my existence. It's been the thing I've tried to, um, you know, tackle, uh, you know, in my work since I started at the BDCC. And so this just feels, um, it's tangible and, yeah, just it, I feel like we're we're really making an impact not just on our community, of course, but on, on the folks' lives who have landed in Brattleboro, Vermont, whether by choice or by you know a hazardous circumstance. I mean, there's two things for me that just bring tears to my eyes regularly. Um, you know, one of them is going even like deeper into the weeds on that, which is I am occasionally reminded of the the exact nature of the experience of the people that we're helping and who are in turn really helping our community have a, a new future ahead of ourselves. It's something that, you know, real thriving in a way that I don't think I had hoped for for a long time. Um, these are folks, you know, who have had their entire lives thrown out and who are sending precious dollars back home to people, you know, who really, really, really might not survive without those dollars. Um, we have people who came here who left behind, um, you know, pregnant wives, multiple children, mothers, ailing relatives. They had no choice. They had to do what they had to do. Most of them would not have lived had they stayed. And so it's so real and it's so um, easy. For, you know, my job is very bureaucratic and partnership building and all this stuff. And every once in a while, I'm just like reminded of how precious this is what we're doing. And I'm also super moved, like, on a regular basis, um, you know, my job is problem solving, so I can spend all day focusing on problems. <laughs> when we take a step back, I cannot believe the number of people that are involved in this and what they're doing. We have like retired college SAT professors who are leaning in to create this incredible network of English language teaching that it goes from specialized tutoring to classes all the time. We have businesses, we have HR people who are totally patiently emailing back and forth regularly, just asking simple questions. How can we adapt our facilities? Troubleshooting with us. It's, it's kind of incredible, the array of people and the, the diversity of people, including our, you know, our Department of Labor bureaucrats. And it's, everyone's being incredible and bringing different creativity to the table. And it's, it's really inspiring to see um, the level of just kind of ingenuity and commitment I, I just, I didn't really, I kind of knew it was there. I just didn't know that it would really be de like kind of like activated in such a way. I love that. And hearing about the way that that brings like hope and new future um, for our community is, is wonderful. What are some of the initiatives or, you know, growth that you all are excited about for the future of um, your work at your organization Alex, what are some of the things that are maybe happening later this year for you? Yeah, so you know, my role is is to develop a, a, a bi county system that better supports immigrants and refugees. And 
Um, so what I'm excited about is that's a pretty open-ended thing and that I can really create the conditions for the community to choose what that means, but particularly the immigrant community to choose what that means for them. And so, um, this at the, you know, early fall, we're going to have a, um, a community celebration for all of the folks who identify as immigrants or having immigrant backgrounds in our community so that they get to know each other. And so that there can be a sense of solidarity and welcomeness and belonging amongst the folks who come from outside of our country. And so that I think on a personal level is really exciting. And it wasn't my idea. You know, there, we of course have, um, you know, asylum seekers and former refugees, um, as a part of our welcoming communities initiative on our leadership team. And this was their idea. You know, I was like, let's do a visioning session that's heavily facilitated. And they're like, what if you just like had folks bring their own food? You know, maybe you could pay them for it. And it could actually be just a get to know each other and, and you know, kind of practice what you preach around welcoming. So I think in, in the short term or in the, in the you know, the, the micro, that's what I'm really excited about. We've also recently convened um, all of the English language learning providers across our county. And seeing how they interact and what the opportunities that experts who are engaging regularly and collaborating, you know, what they'll be able to do, I'm really excited to see that. So again, my role is to empower the experts in this, in these topics um, to do what they do best in rural communities. And so I get to learn as much about what ELL delivery looks like in, you know, a small town. Um I, you know, I get to learn about that. And then I get to say, so what can I do to help? What can we as a region um, do better or differently? And I think the fact that we don't have the answers, we're kind of building them as we go, is what I'm really excited about. I'm going to take this back out into my job is to worry about like the whole economy, but like in, like in five year increments, you know, and so I like really am excited about how this is going to help unstick a bunch of problems we already had. When we were in the middle of COVID, we actually, we have a SEDS, which is a federally approved uh, economic strategic plan um, funded by the EDA. And we um, decided to take a look at it during uh, COVID in light of the pandemic and also Black Lives Matters. And we convened a group to talk about you know, what do we need to revisit about our strategic plan in light of these things? And one of the things that really came out of that that relates to welcoming communities very much was the concern that, you know, yes, we need people. Yes, we need to welcome diversity. We need to welcome all kinds of new people. And at the same time, we have to be honest that we're not living up to our promise to the people who are already here, right? You know, the BIPOC Vermonters are, are, are not thriving all the time. And, you know, we are not really where we think we are as far, you know, it's a very progressive region and yet we're really not knocking it out of the park and we have a lot of work to do. So I think we went into welcoming communities with that mindset of this isn't really just about the newcomers. In some ways, the newcomers is an opportunity to make this better for everyone. And we have to take that seriously. Um, and I see that already. I think, for instance, we have, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of volunteers involved in this. Now we have a group of educated, retired politically engaged Vermonters who have learned about benefit cliffs, who have learned about the shortcomings of our transportation commitment. You know, we don't fund it enough to get people to and from work very well. This is really important because the changes that that can enable, they are now aware of the housing shortage, which by the way, predates COVID. 
This is changing the conversation. It's changing the buy-in around the need to improve the conditions for working people and for people who are at the bottom of the economic ladder and trying to get their way up it. And I just feel that that to me is the most inspiring thing because these are conversations that we've been engaged in for years and I was engaged in statewide for a couple of years. Getting people talking about the need for housing is something that was always very difficult, except when we were just talking about either affordable housing or how resorts had to expand, you know, amenities to attract the next generation of well-heeled visitors. Talking about housing for working people is an extension of talking about housing for refugees, and it's working. So I really feel like, and that's the thing I'm keeping an eye on, because it, it's this can't be, and it won't be at the expense of the folks who are already here who aren't thriving. This has to actually improve those conditions. And, and, I, and I feel that so far, that's exactly what's happening. The Department of Labor leaning in um, to certain kinds of, you know, using WIOA, using very wonky things, that actually is great for everyone who's trying to enter the workforce and upskill, for instance. So, so that's really how we think about this, structuring things in a way that is great for everyone who's here so that we can have like thriving working people, thriving companies. Yeah, such an important point. Thank and, you. And I'll just, you know, reiterate when Jen mentioned changing the conversation, you know, our local housing and land trust had their annual meeting recently, and their topic was how do we create welcoming communities? And it wasn't a part of our initiative. It was part of the conversation that our initiative started. And so even though it hasn't been going very long, Again, as Jen said, the conversation is changing and it's inclusivity is what this is about. And, you know, that means all shifts will rise with the tide and just seeing it happen already um, is exciting. Yeah, I bet. So to close this out for our listeners who might be interested in trying to get something like this started in their place and making their town more welcoming for for new Americans or making it better for people who are already there, what advice would you give for someone listening that might want to take some steps to do what you all are doing? Um, Jen, let's hear from you. <laughs> well, I was privileged to enter into this situation several years ago after a lot of the initial super duper hard work was done of organizing at the grassroots level of getting out there and going town to town, having difficult conversations about why everyone needed to figure out how to stop acting individually town by town. And everyone needed to find ways to act regionally and needed to look forward and be proactive and not let the economy just be a thing that happens to you. I mean, that's always ongoing work, but I stepped into a situation where really smart people had learned had experienced some very difficult things, including a just devastating tropical storm that just wiped towns off the map and had taken that as an opportunity to change the way things happened. And I, I just think it's like, it's always easy to, to backseat the planning part and the, the, the hard conversations. And then like, we're in a time right now when, you know, once in a lifetime money is dropping into communities and the communities that have been having those conversations and doing that planning have shovel-ready projects. They're like, oh no, we're clear on what's next. Thank you for the money. And the communities that have been just, you know, putting that off or avoiding it are like, well, let's just like shore up the budget. <laughs> you know, they're not ready to talk about that housing, you know, the senior housing thing or the teen center that they know is going to help, you know, keep families in their town. So I just always come back to like, I know this makes me sound like a planner. I am. <laughs> really investing in that work is what gets you to the place where you're ready to do this. And you can't skip that step. 
Yeah, well said. Alex, what advice would you give for someone listening that's interested in, in trying to do some of the work that you all are doing? I know it is not uh, not a small undertaking at all. Yeah, I mean, I hate to harp on what Jen said, but you know, part of having the good plan is also it builds trust, um, especially when you're working in something delicate like immigration. So when someone will say, well, why is the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation interested in this? We can say, we've actually been talking about bringing more folks into our community for 10 years. That is one example of, you know, when you go from the bottom up, when you can repeat the comments from towns who every year say, we need more people, we need more people. Um, when you can be that mirror and say, well, here's a good solution. I think that is how you do things with community instead of to community. And and I think we've seen, um, you know, some of the political um, problems when you try and force a refugee resettlement office to open or, or something along those lines for a community that doesn't feel like they had buy-in. And so it's, it's the relationships that you build that you need to make a good plan and then circling back and making sure everyone understands this is what we're talking about. This is what we've all been talking about. This is something that we're doing together and then really making sure there's that trust that, that we sort of know what we're talking about and that regardless of how things shake out, um, this is a collaborative effort and we're all in it together and no one's going to be left holding the bag. Um, I think that goes a really long way on whatever initiative you're trying to execute in your town. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Jen Stromson and Alex Beck for coming on the show and sharing about all the amazing work you are doing in Brattleboro. It's really a pleasure to talk with you both. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode. Um, we're especially appreciative of everyone who's listening, who is a member of Strong Towns. Your support makes this podcast possible, makes all our resources, our webcasts, our articles, our videos, everything that we do is possible because of our members. So if you'd like to join that crew of awesome people, head to strongtowns.org slash membership. Also want to wish everybody, at least folks in the U.S., a good Independence Day holiday. It happens to be my birthday. So I will be, you know, taking the day off, of course. Uh, we may or may not have an episode for you next week because of that holiday, but we'll definitely be back um, in two weeks for sure with your next episode. So take care, everyone, and thank you for listening. <laughs>